All right, so today I'm going to be giving kind of just final exhortations to you all, right? So people are often fascinated with last words, those final words offered up on your deathbed. Numerous books have been published on famous deathbed sayings throughout history. There's even a whole Wikipedia page on deathbed sayings. Maybe you've heard of some of these. Nathan Hale, the Continental Army spy during the Revolutionary War, famously said before he was hanged, I only regret that I have but one life to give for my country. So patriotic and heroic, wonderful last words. Bob Marley, the famous musician. That's right, get some head nods, a little Rastafarian action. Money can't buy life. Profound. 50 Cent also said, get rich or die trying, but... Yeah, that's another thing. Or the final words of Winston Churchill. Those weren't his final words, but, you know, a little different than Bob Marley. You've got 50 Cent. The final words of Winston Churchill, former prime, prime minister of Great Britain during World War II, I'm bored with it all. That's a great way to go out, and that sounds exactly like Winston Churchill. Final words intrigue us for several reasons. We cherish these words as the final moments with the one that we love. They bring resolution to relational tension, maybe within a father and a daughter or whoever it may be. They bring relational tension within family members. These words can serve as in, into a window, as a window into what a person was all about, what was most important to them. They're important words. We can look to these words for inspiration, for comedic relief, or even the desire to get something out of the family will, sadly. The point is that final words aren't wasted words. We learned that a couple weeks back in Called and Sent. They're not wasted words. And so picture yourself on your deathbed. You're on your deathbed. What would you want your final words to be? Out of all that you could say, what would you want to leave with those that you love? What would you want to leave with them? Now, I'm not on my deathbed, though after last night's sleep, I feel like I'm on my deathbed. So if I start speaking Hebrew in here, you understand why? It's because Brooks did not sleep a lick last night. Um, but... I'm not on my deathbed, or so I don't think, um, but these are really kind of just serving as my final exhortations to you as one who gives oversight to college ministry. Now, Lord willing, I'm going to be around till the end of the year, so I'm going to see most of you, uh, but I don't want these words to be wasted words. However, I'm not going to say anything profound this morning. This is not going to be anything new. These instead are going to be reminders. They're stuff that you've already heard before, and so often exhortations throughout the Bible they're reminders. In the Old Testament, God instituted festivals and feasts to commemorate and remind his people year after year of his work of redeeming his people out of Egypt. One of the jobs of the Old Testament prophets was to remind God's people of God's word and then call them to live in obedience to it. In the New Testament, Paul tells the church in Philippi to write this, that to write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is actually safe for you. For Paul reminders safeguard God's people from spiritual amnesia. That's what they do. Why? Because we're so, we're so forgetful of what God has already said. Reminders safeguard God's people from spiritual amnesia. And so my hope this morning is just to do the same, to protect you from spiritual laziness and then to push you towards spiritual faithfulness. And so I want to give you six priorities that I want to leave you with that serve really as just reminders for continuing to live a godly life in college and beyond. I'm going to ground each of these in a text. You've got it there in your handout. Ground that in a text. And recognize I cannot say everything. There's a whole lot that I wanted to say, 
unfortunately, I cannot say everything, and so I want to leave you with just those things that I've already said before that are very simple. So point number one, prioritize the glory of Christ. In John 17, 4 through 5, actually, somebody want to read that? John 17, 4 through 5. Okay, so these are Jesus' final instructions to his disciples before he's arrested and crucified. And he says that right there. And so right here, Jesus is giving a window, he's giving us a window into what his highest priority is. Jesus' priority was to glorify the Father through his work of saving sinners. The Father is glorified through Jesus accomplishing what no one else could. Took God's Son, sacrificing himself for us to reconcile us to the Father. For Jesus, the Father's glory was his priority even at the cost of his life. That was his highest priority. Then Jesus prays this, that the Father would glorify him in his presence, which is interesting because Jesus just said that his priority was to glorify the Father. But now Jesus is asking the Father to glorify him. Look at that last phrase in verse 5 right there. Jesus says, glorify me with that glory I had with you before the world existed. So that glory, that glory, the beauty and the greatness of God's perfect nature and character and being and his power, that glory was not something new. That glory actually never even had a start date to it. How do you know that? How do you know that from the text? The last phrase right there in verse 5. What gives it away? That that glory didn't have a start date. Christ had it with the Father, right? He had it with the Father before he even became Jesus, became man. It's always existed. And it exists from eternity because our eternal God shares this glory within himself as a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God's glory is eternal because he's eternally glorious. And yet God in love created us that we might behold this glory and then respond to that glory by living for his glory. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that in whatever we do, we're to do it to the glory of God. Our highest priority is God's glory. The Westminster Catechism, famous catechism, begins the same, with the same recognition that the chief end, that is the goal, the chief goal of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Or to put it in the words of John Piper, who famous, famously said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. It's a great line. Are we most satisfied in him? We are most satisfied in him whenever we are living to glorify him. So would you say that's the highest priority of your life? Is that the highest priority of your life? When you look at your schedule, your spare time, your relationships, your desires, your money, your words, your thoughts, and so on, all of it, when you look at that, would you say that those things actually reflect your greatest satisfaction and highest priority in life? Now, you might say, yeah, I think so. I think it does. But one of my fears is that although that we may say that, our hearts can quickly use Christ to justify self-centered goals that have been shaped by worldly priorities. Think about that. Your heart, 
using Christ to justify, to justify self-centered goals that are shaped by worldly priorities. We say we want to glorify God with our major, and so we study all the time to the neglect of God's word, thinking that God is only glorified with a 4.0 or graduating with honors. Yet in reality, the desire for achievement at the neglect of God is actually just a mask for our own praise, if we're really being honest. It is. It's a mask for our own praise. We say we want to get a good job, make a lot of money, to glorify God, even to the neglect of our commitment to God's people, thinking that God is only glorified through our prosperity. Yet in reality, the desire for prosperity at the neglect of God's people is just a mask for our own greed, if we're being honest. Now, I'm not saying that those things can't be the means through which you legitimately glorify God. Okay? They certainly can be. But we need to be careful that we not use Jesus for our own glory, thinking that we're glorifying Jesus through that. If God is only glorified through us being glorious in the world's eyes, then Jesus failed. He is a failure, if that's the case. He wasn't materially rich. He never got married. And his job, think about this, his job was to literally come and die for a bunch of people who rejected him. Right? His resume just said failure in the world's eyes. That's what it was. In the world's eyes, he was a failure. In reality, though, he is the redeemer and the ruler of the universe. That's what he is. It's not what people expected. And yet, you get the, most, you get the point right here. God is not most glorified when we are most glorious to others. That's not the case. He is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. If your highest priority is set on what is eternal, then it has no way of being taken away from you. The return on your investment has no way of crashing. No way of crashing. Instead, your, your investment actually reaps eternal dividends. has no way of being taken away. Why would you want to invest or prioritize anything else over God? The only one who fully deserves our hearts is the one who created them and then died to transform them and conform them to his own image. So if this is supposed to be our highest priority, then what does that look like? Point number two, prioritize making disciples. Point number two, prioritize making disciples. The New Testament has got five texts known as the Great Commission text where Jesus appears to his disciples during his 40-day ascension on five separate occasions to hand down his marching orders and final words, right, his final words, to his disciples. Clearly, this is important. He's repeating it over and over again at different locations during his 40-day ascension. It's important. I want to focus on the gospel of Matthew's Great Commission text from Matthew 28. No doubt, many of you have heard of this. You've probably studied it. And I'm not going to be saying anything new with this. But let's look at Matthew 28, verse 19. Jesus commands his disciples to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Notice what Jesus doesn't say right here. He doesn't say to go and make converts or decisions of all nations, as if you just kind of get them into the kingdom and then your job's done. That's all you got to do is just get them into the kingdom. Now, the Great Commission is certainly more than just share your faith, but it's not less than that. That's where we begin, not where we end. That's where it begins. So look what it does look like to make a disciple right here. Jesus tells us that it happens through baptizing and teaching. 
Now, this assumes that disciple-making happens in the context of the local church because the local church is the one that Jesus gave authority to make clear who is and who isn't his disciple through baptism in the Lord's Supper. They mark off who is and who's not a disciple of Jesus. Jesus gave the church that authority to be able to do that. That is, if they have a right understanding of the gospel. And not only are we to baptize, but we're also to teach. Notice what kind of teaching takes place. He doesn't tell us to just impart information to people. Just go and just teach them a bunch of information. In verse 20, Jesus tells us to teach them to obey all that he has commanded. Jesus isn't only concerned with the knowledge of the disciple, but also the holiness of his disciples. That's what he's concerned about. Just receiving information isn't enough. We've got to live according to what he's commanded. Now, you and I both know that this task of making disciples can often seem daunting. You know it can. When you're sitting there at lunch and you're trying to share the the gospel with your friend, you know that that seems daunting. But I want this to encourage you. Consider this. Consider this. Number one, verse 18. Okay, Jesus has authority. He has all authority. All authority. That's not just some. He legit has all authority in heaven and on earth. The second thing to notice, he's commanded his disciples to make disciples of all nations over which he has all authority. Not only that, he gives us a promise right here. Gives us a promise. I am with you always to the end of the age. So the same Jesus who commands difficult obedience for all his disciples also says, oh yeah, I'm going with you, actually. And you're actually not going to be alone. I am going with you. You may not be able to answer every question, and you may not be able to navigate every single situation, but that is not the point. The point is, I am with you, and I have called you to faithful obedience. So what will I say when they respond in a way that I can't can't answer? Well, that's not the most important question. The most important thing is being faithful to Christ and what he's commanded you to do. And think about that encouragement, the fact that he is with us. That's a huge encouragement to us. Right? This ought to encourage us in our evangelism and discipleship that it isn't ultimately about you. So often we make it about us. What are they going to think of me whenever I share the gospel with them? What, I, what if I have to like, confront them in their sin? Is that going to disrupt my relationship with them? The most important thing isn't your relationship with them. The most important thing is their relationship with the Lord. That's the most important thing. Often this is a self-centered approach to evangelism that's sure to fail. So do you know the gospel? Do you know the gospel? Like legitimately, God created us for relationship with him. We rejected him in our sin, and now we are separated from God, deserve eternal death, and yet God in his love and mercy has sent his son to die on the cross for our sins, rose three days later conquering sin and death, and now has called people to repent of their sins and trust in him as, his Lord, as their Lord and Savior. Do you know that gospel? Right, very quick. Do you know that gospel? If you can say yes, wonderful. Are you alone in this work? No, you have Christ with you. You have all that you need to be able to declare Christ and to make disciples. Do you need to continue to grow in your faith? Yes, and continue to get trained in these things? Yes, but ultimately, base level, Jesus didn't come and give the command to make disciples and say, well, hold on, let me give a couple of caveats here. I'm gonna give this one to the extroverts. For the introverts, I'll make it a little less for you guys. I know you don't like being around people, you know? That's not the case. If you're an introvert, I'm not knocking you here. Uh, But he didn't give caveats to this. This is given to everybody. 
So clearly Jesus thinks that his disciples can actually do this because he gives them the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And he's with you to the end of the age. You've got all that you need to be able to make disciples. The question is whether or not you're gonna do that and be faithful at sowing the seed of the gospel. That's what you're gonna be held accountable for, sowing that seed, not whether or not somebody comes to faith in Christ. All right, so Matthew leaves the conclusion to his gospel, which is fascinating. Matthew ends his book leaving the conclusion to it open-ended. He leaves it open-ended. It's as if it's an invite to then go and seek to fulfill what Jesus has commanded you to going and making disciples. But the question is, are you going to be a part of that story? That's part of Matthew's rhetoric right there. He wants you to enter that story and to go about making disciples. In order to do that, number three, we got to prioritize our sanctification. Prioritize your sanctification. When I use the word sanctification, I'm speaking specifically about the cooperative work of God and Christians in the process of becoming more like Christ. That's what I mean when I'm talking about sanctification. I'm speaking about our growth in godliness, living a life set apart from sin, and wholly devoted to God. That's sanctification. And so as we saw in our previous point with Jesus' words in Matthew 28, 20, disciple-making is more than just a transfer of information. It's to live in obedience to all that Jesus has commanded. It's our holiness as well. God is concerned about our godliness. In fact, it's his will for us. Look at Paul's words right there in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. Somebody read that. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. Okay, now the question that arises from this text is why? 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 And there are multiple answers. Number one, why am I to live a godly life? Because it's God's will for your life. Your sanctification is God's will for your life. Man, that answers a lot of questions in life, does it not? God's will for your life is basically your holiness. So that means you can make a lot of decisions and yet still honor the Lord. So praise God for that. We don't have to be clueless anymore. God's will for your life is your sanctification. So do you want to know his will? Right there it is. Become more like Christ. But why is it God's will? Second thing, because God has not called you to impurity, but to live in holiness. God is holy. He's called us to be holy as he is holy. However, it's only by being in Christ through faith that we can become like Christ through faith. Does that make sense? It's only by being united to faith, by being united to Christ through faith that you can even become like Christ. Those outside of Christ can't become like Christ just by doing a bunch of good things. This is not moralism, this is Christianity. And so we become like Christ by being united to him, by turning from our sin and trusting in Christ. If you've not done that, and God is 
called you, is calling you to himself, then turn from your sin and trust in him and become like Christ. The final answer that we get for why we pursue a holy life is the third thing. If anyone rejects the call to live a holy life, you reject this call. They are outrightly rejecting God who gives them the Holy Spirit. Notice that God doesn't leave us to ourselves to become like Christ. He helps you. He gives you the Holy Spirit. And without the Spirit, we don't become like Christ. Yet what we need to understand of this pursuit of holiness is that holiness isn't ultimately the goal. This is what I want us to get with this point. Holiness is not the goal of your sanctification. You're shooting short if holiness is the goal. It's not the goal. Sanctification is the process by which you become more like who? Christ, not a better version of you. That's different. Holiness is not the goal. And so notice how this reorients your perspective on living a holy life. If the goal is just merely the absence of porn in your life, or caring about your self-image less, or no longer being angry, or selfish, or quitting bad habits, or thoughts, or being a nice person, or forgiving and caring people, those, those are great things. You're merely just being a moralist, striving to be a good person. But holiness is more than just being a good person. It's about pursuing the one who alone is good. The rest of the world, right, is on a track of trying to be good. The rest of the world is concerned with that, wanting to try to live a good life. If the goal of your godliness is detached from Christ, then it's ungodly. It's ungodly. Christ is the beginning and the end of our sanctification. This is why Paul tells the church in Colossae that before they can put to death what's earthly in them and put on like clothing what accords with Christ, what aligns with him, he tells them in Colossians 3, 2, to set their minds on things above where Christ is seated and not on earthly things. The only way that you murder your sin and put on Christ is by already having a mind that's set on Jesus. Why? Because he's the goal. Right? That's what you're striving for, is more Christ-likeness. Without setting our hearts on Christ, we will live like the rest of the world because we become like the one that we worship. Holiness is ultimately glorifying God by enjoying Jesus. And we enjoy Jesus by living a holy life. That's the good life. That's a hard life. Often that's not a comfortable life. But that's the good life. That's what it looks like. So when you're fighting a particular sin, whether it's anxiety, anger, pride, or any others, it's important to remember that Jesus is far more unsatisfying than the sin that you could be settling for. This is where C.S. Lewis is wonderful. Because C.S. Lewis is making the argument, you know, if you remember that famous illustration about the kid who settles for making mud pies in the slum when he's offered a holiday at the sea. That's exactly what we're doing when we settle for sin. What C.S. Lewis is getting at right there is the fact that it's not that your desires are too strong. I just can't control them, they're just too strong. But he says they're actually not strong enough. They're actually too weak. Because you have something far better to be satisfied in who would satisfy you for an eternity, if only you would look to him. Christ is the focus of our sanctification, and your sanctification is God's will for your life. But how can we deepen that intimacy with Christ? How can that happen? I want to give us three pathways to do so. Point number four. Man, we're already on point number four. Holy cow. You guys feel like I've been going forever. I feel like I just started. 
Point four, prioritize the word, prayer, and community. Prioritize the word, prayer, and community. This will be the longest point, but not so long that you won't get out in time. Historically, these three pathways have been known as the means of grace, right? Historically, they're being called the means of grace. God has provided us with these three main pathways of his grace that we can place ourselves upon for deepening our fellowship with Christ. They're provisions for holiness, and we're responsible for making good use of them and becoming like Christ. Yet sadly, if we're all being honest, we all can confess that we don't take hold of these means of God's provision for our conformity to Christ. We often don't. We all do this. We fail to do it. We're often like a climber on Mount Everest who gets called up by Patagonia, a.k.a. Fratagonia, right? Get called up by Patagonia, and Patagonia says, yo, we want to outfit you with all our best gear to ensure that you get to the summit so you can rep us at the summit so the whole world will see how great we are. But instead of taking hold of their provisions to make it to the top, we instead say, no thanks, I'll just wear what I got on. I'll make it to the top. With no gear to withstand the brutal elements, we inevitably run out of oxygen, and we what? We freeze to death. When we reject the provisions of God's grace, we're cutting off our lifeline to greater intimacy, to greater conformity, and ecstasy in Christ's presence. That's what we're doing. God has given you the provisions to make it to the summit. And yet, when we don't, we're cutting that lifeline off. When we reject these provisions, right, we're like the author of of Hebrews, as he tells us, that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so we want to take hold of these means of God's grace. And so the first up is God's word. First one is God's word. In John 15, Jesus is speaking to his disciples on how to live as they wait for his second coming. And in John chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus connects their remaining in him with their remaining in his words. He says this, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. Sounds like a pretty good deal. Jesus is telling us that remaining in him means that his words are abiding in us. So we don't just abide in Christ by obeying him but by his words actually taking hold of our hearts. Deeper fellowship with Christ can't happen without knowing truth about Christ in the word of truth that he has given to us in his words. You can't have a deep relationship with someone that you actually don't spend time with. So, for example, before my wife, Kristen, and I were together, or married, or I guess together, we could even say, um, before we even got together, I had my eye on her. But what was the best way for me to actually get to know her? I could Facebook stalk her. That's probably not going to work out so hot. Facebook stalking is not, not a great way to get to know somebody. I could kind of like hang out with all of her friends and like, hey, tell me about this girl. I want to know her. Tell me all about her. Right? And they're like, oh, she's there. You know, like she's gonna, they're going to say all kinds of stuff. But then if I really genuinely want to get to know her, what do I need to do? I've actually got to talk to her. That's right. I've actually got to take her on dates and get to know her. I need to spend time with her in order to get to know her. How am I actually going to know what she believes, how she thinks, how she feels, what she's like without talking to her personally? Answer, you can't. 
okay? Tinder ain't going to do that for you. You shouldn't be on there anyway. It's the same way with our relationship with Christ. We can't grow in our love and conformity to someone that we don't interact with. And yet, he's spoken, right? He's already talking. He's just doing this right here. And we're kind of like, hey, I'm ready for the relationship if you want to start this thing, right? And we just got to be like, okay, yeah, let's, let's have a conversation. Let me go ahead and read some of this and get to know you a little bit. That's what we need to do. So here are a couple of quick practical tips. Yes, it will get practical. Here we go. We need to get a time, a place, and a plan. Many of you have already heard me say this, and so you're like, this is old hat. I've heard this. But many of us really don't do this. Let's be honest. We don't. We often don't do this. But we need to. We need to actually set aside a time to read God's word. Oh, well, I'm just going to read it whenever I get up in the morning. Okay, I bet you are. Yeah. Like, left to myself, I would rather just sleep in, to be honest with you. Left to myself, I'd much rather sleep in. But the scriptures teach us that the best time to meet with the Lord is when? Don't you say the morning. Anytime. It's anytime. That's the best time. It's anytime. Now, there is certainly wise, there's certainly a wise reason to start in the morning. You start your day off with the Lord and getting your mind set upon him rather than upon self or all the cares of the world when you pull up your social media feed and just get bombarded from Twitter politics right, by the blue check mark brigade. You've got to watch out. That's not going to feed your soul whenever you wake up in the morning. What's going to feed your soul is the word of God. And so you need to block that time out on your calendar. When you do that, think about your capacity in certain seasons of your life. Think about your capacity. This is important. So my wife is in a little different season uh, with the capacity that she's got right now for spending time with the Lord. So if she gets 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there, maybe she meditates on a verse throughout the day because we've got a newborn, that's what it looks like. Now for you all coming up with finals, the knee-jerk reaction of your heart is wanting to go into freak-out mode. I did the exact same thing, and I still do the exact same thing at times. That's the knee-jerk reaction of your heart. So what you're going to have to do is you're actually going to have to block out time to study God's Word, just like you would block out a whole afternoon in order to study for your survey of Cal test or whatever you're taking. Maybe you're taking something far beyond survey of Cal. I don't know. Maybe differential equations. Anybody in here taking that? All right, we got one. Okay. Um, anyways, you're going to have to block that time out. Finals are coming up. I'm telling you, if you want to prioritize it, you've got to block the time out, just like you would block out in your schedule time to study. So often when you look back, oh, it was a bad week. I just didn't get time with the Lord. Okay, did you get time to study? Yeah, I studied for probably 15 hours. Okay, all right. I wonder if you could take away one of those hours to give to the Lord, and you still got 14 to studying. Think about it. you got to have a time. Block it out. Secondly, a place. The important thing is that you know where you're going to read the Word. I don't suggest reading it in your bed. You're going to fall asleep. You read it in your bed. That's probably not the best place to do it. I wouldn't go to a loud, crowded area. I'm just going to go get my time in the Word, time with the Lord at Starbucks, you know. Then everybody can walk in and see you doing your thing. Like, oh, that's really attractive, you know. Now, on campus, it may not be attractive anymore, but, you know, the whole Christian subculture, you know, that can often be attractive. Like, oh, okay, doing it, in, doing it out in public. I see you. Ideally, though, you're going to be distracted the whole time you're in the Word. So doing it while there's mass chaos going on is probably not going to serve you well, 
And so you need a place that's going to be where you're alone with the Lord, spending time with him. And then thirdly, you got to have a plan. you got to have a plan. Well, I'm just going to open up my Bible. Whatever I land on, bam, that's what I'm reading today. That seems pretty convenient. It seems real convenient, but it's not. Often it's not because you don't really retain much of what you just read by doing the kind of haphazard reading. You're not seeing how the scriptures actually fit together. If you plan, right, if you fail to plan, you will plan to fail. Anybody ever heard that? Yeah. If you fail to plan, you're going to plan to fail, as it's been said. Get a Bible reading plan to help you stay focused on what to read if you need one. Now, I'm, I would say Bible reading plans are wonderful. That's great. In terms of transfer of information, getting a broad uh, scope on the scriptures, that's wonderful. But I want to encourage you to actually take it a step deeper. Right? I want to caution you just from reading the word for information, which can so often happen whenever we just read the Bible in a year. Instead, what I want to encourage you with is what John Piper famously said to his kids one time when they were complaining about the difficulty of reading a certain book. He said, raking is easy. Raking is easy, but all you get is leaves. Digging is hard, but you might find diamonds. You're going to have to dig if you want some diamonds. God's word is an infinite treasure, and there is gold all over the place. But you're going to have to dig for it. And you're going to have to spend time actually thinking about what the text says, not just knowing what the text says. So, for example, consider meditating on the Psalms by using Tim Keller's method when you do. This is helpful. Um, He says, adore, admit, aspire. So three things, adore, admit, aspire. So when you adore, you're asking the question. You want to ask questions of the text. That's how you get into meditation, asking questions of the text. So adore, what did you learn about God for which you could praise or thank him? What did you learn about God for which you could praise or thank him? That's a door in the Psalms. Then you want to turn from a door to admit. What did you learn about yourself for which you could repent? What did you learn about yourself for which you could repent? That's admit. And then aspire. What did you learn about life that you could aspire to, ask for, and act on? And I think the one that he doesn't, doesn't put in here is, I think you're going to have to figure out how the text actually points to Jesus. How is Christ the fulfillment of this text? I think that's important before you start asking yourself the application of aspiring. I just didn't come up with an A word. Maybe you can, and you can tell me. Uh, but you want to ask that one before you get into aspire. So our time with the Lord does not end, though, with meditation. I want to encourage you with meditation. It doesn't end there. It doesn't end with meditation. Instead, as it's been said, meditation bridges the gap between hearing from God, that is reading the word, hearing from God, and then speaking to God, which is prayer. Meditation bridges the gap between hearing from God and speaking to God. It turns your Bible reading into the content of your prayers. That's what it's meant to do. Meditation You want that to roll over then into prayer. Notice how Jesus connects this in our passage actually in John 15, which is fascinating. In verse 7, Jesus gives us two conditions for answered prayer. That is, when we abide in him and his words abide in us. Those two conditions, right? What's the result? We can ask whatever we want and it will be done for us. Now we need to clarify that. Jesus says further down in verse 16 that whatever we ask the Father in his name, 
according to his character, according to his glory, according to his will. Whatever we ask the Father in the name of Christ, he will give us. So contrary to treating God like a cosmic genie who just gives us whatever our heart desires, Jesus is saying that his words remain in us. Then our desire will be what he desires, and the, con- and the content of our prayers are actually going to be his words. Does that make sense? They will end up being his words. So prayer is not gratifying our natural desires, but it's communicating our highest desire is for Christ's will to be done, not our own. The most fruitful prayers are those drenched in God's word, which is God's will for our lives. So how do we pray scripture? What I would do is I would use Keller's Psalms method right there that we just talked about. I would ask those questions and I would pray for the things that you learn for your life and those, I would pray those things that you learn from that passage, pray those things for your life and the lives of others around you. And then I would pray those things for others within the church. Whip out your member directory. If you're a member, here it is, right there. Pray those things for other members on the day that it is of the month. Oh, look, it's the, what is today, 25th? Bam, absent not attending list. All right, pray those things for them, okay? Moving on. You can also pray the prayers of Paul. These are super helpful. You've got them in there in your, on your handout, right? Pray the prayers of Paul. And so if I'm in Philippians, right, and I'm reading Philippians, I'm like, oh, I want to pray some of the prayers of Paul for someone within the congregation. And I say, okay, I'm going to pray for Molly Singleton. Father, we pray, or I pray, that your love, Lord, that, that Molly may know your love, and that it would keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that she may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You're praying God's will over her life, over your life. That's the best way to see answered prayer right there. That's what we're to do. Prayer isn't about eloquence or exercise of the tongue. It's about the exercise of faith in response to the knowledge of God. That's what it is. So do you genuinely want to see God answer prayer? Then pray God-centered prayers rather than me-centered prayers. Let the content of your prayers be saturated with Scripture. Now the great news is that you don't actually have to do this alone. And what I want to encourage you with on the community piece, right? I could encourage you a lot of different ways with this. What I want to encourage you with on this community piece is that God has given you the local church for your own growth in godliness. He has. And one of the ways that you can do that is actually take the word and prayer and then go meet up with somebody who's another member of the church throughout the week. Plan to meet with somebody twice throughout the week. If you're struggling to get in the word, this is one of the most helpful ways to start a habit of getting in the word. Put people in your life that you have to meet with that will hold you accountable so that when you meet up, you're just going to go through a book of the Bible. You're going to read a chapter together. You're going to ask some questions together of the text. And then after that, Maybe you open up member directory or maybe you got some people that you want to pray for. You pray the things that you saw in the text for those people. Get with God's people to help you grow. When you do that, you're learning how to pray. You're learning what to pray for. You're learning how to read the scriptures because you may be reading with somebody who's better at discerning certain observations in the text than you might be. And so that's growing you in Christ-likeness. could be helpful as well to think through one-to-one Bible reading plan like with somebody. It's a helpful book to be able to get and to be able to sit down with others, right? Think about how you can be, who you can be meeting up with in order to do that. All right, wrap this thing up, okay? Here's the thing. Real maturity happens 
when you're hungry for, your, not only when you're hungry for your own growth, but when you're hungry for the growth of others around you. That's when real maturity is going to happen. Not only are you concerned about your own growth and godliness, but you're also concerned about the growth of godliness in others. That's when maturity is going to be happening. It happens when you don't run from difficulty like Jonah, but you trust in God's goodness and his plan to mature you through it. Often we want to escape when things get hard. And the Lord's like, no, we're just in round one, okay? We need to get to round 10 in order, in order to continue to mature. And I'm telling you, on the other side of that, though it's difficult, there's going to be a whole lot more satisfaction in the Lord because you're going to be living in utter reliance upon him. You're going to be living fully upon him. And so I want so badly for your college years to be fruitful rather than fruitless, to be formative in your walk with Christ. All of that, all of that, if that's going to be the case, then you certainly are not going to go wrong with prioritizing the glory of Christ over your own glory. Prioritizing making disciples rather than just making decisions or converts. Prioritizing your sanctification. Prioritizing the word, prayer, and the local church. This is some of just what it truly means to fear the Lord. You do recognize that. Often whenever we think about the fear of the Lord, we're like, oh my gosh, I'm afraid of God. That's a negative way of looking at it. When in reality, biblically speaking, the fear of the Lord is a positive term. When we fear the Lord, living in the fear of the Lord is just doing the things that we just talked about. You recognize that, right? That's what it means to fear the Lord. And guess what? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Those who fear the Lord are blessed because they lack nothing and they gain everything. And yet those who fear man live according to themselves and they gain nothing and they lack everything as David says in Psalm 34.9. So live in the fear of the Lord through all the things that we just discussed. All right, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to open it up to questions that y'all have. It can be about this if you want it to be about this. It can also be about the transition to Jeremy next week. Be about whatever you want, okay? Let me pray for us. Father, we give praise to you that you are such a kind God to us, or that you have sent your Son to die on the cross so that we might be reconciled to you. You are our highest good. And so, Lord, help us to strive to know you, to live for you, and to make much of Christ with our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.